Hello, this is Peter Hayward, editor of The Lancet HIV, and today I'm going to be speaking to Stephen Goodrow of the Department of Anthropology, University of Washington, USA, and Eli Rosenberg of the Department of Epidemiology, Emory University Rollins School of Public Health, Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm going to be talking to them about uh, a study that they've worked on, published in The Lancet HIV, and that study is called Sources of Racial Disparities in HIV Prevalence in Men Who Have Sex with Men in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Hi there, Stephen. Hello, Peter. Hi, and hello, Eli. Hello. So, this is a modelling study, and, and you've built a dynamic stochastic agent-based network model incorporating race-specific individual and dyadic level prevention and risk behaviours, network attributes and care patterns. Steve, can you briefly explain what that means in lay terms for the non-modellers among us? Uh, sure. Let me step back just a little bit and let uh, you the readers kind of know the history of this literature, which is that in the U.S., within communities of, of gay and bisexual and men who have sex with men, there have been large um, racial disparities in HIV burden for decades. And we, uh, a lot of the work on this has been teasing out sort of individual contributors to the sort of causal effects of all that, everything from very upstream factors like stigma and discrimination and segregation down to a lot more of the direct causal factors, differences in um, access to care, differences in sexual network structure. So there's, there's been a lot of papers looking at each of those components, sort of one-on-one, -on -one, a lot of review papers talking about all of them, but um, no one's really put them all together kind of in a quantitative way and tried to see how much of all of the disparity can be explained by all the different pieces. So that's what we wanted to do. And to do that, uh, we felt we needed to have a, a kind of dynamic model that, that played the whole process out as a simulation in time. So what that means is really building in our computers, you know, a kind of virtual world, like a lot of the computer games people play. But here we have sort of men in the model with all of the kind of demographic attributes we see in, in populations we study, with all of the behaviors we see, with all of the, the access to care and use of care and, and all of that. Um, you mentioned it's a modeling study, but it is a, a modeling study based on a ton of data, and that's mm -hmm. Eli's main role in the project. He's, he's head of the team at Emory that has worked on collecting um, data to, to feed into this model for a long period of time. So we have this population and they're, they're doing their various things and, and uh, you know, according to the parameters we put in based on our data, and then we can observe sort of what disparities arise. And one of the benefits of having it in this model framework is that we can turn different things on and off. So we can say, okay, imagine that these two populations were actually the same in every way, except for the extent to which they are able to access HIV care and then, you know, and then sort of maintain, um, sort of, uh, you know, achieve, achieve viral suppression differently between and put everything else the same. And then we can say, okay, those care differences seem to explain X percent of the disparity, whereas these other things, you know, while these other things are up. So it's a, it's a, it's a really great tool for doing that kind of work. And so, uh, following on from that, what other advantages of this approach are there for studying differences between two groups, such as black and white men who have sex with men? I mean, that, that sort of, yes, ability to turn things on and off is one great piece, an ability to also, you know, kind of probe additional what if. What if not just this piece of the disparity, you know, is the only one there, but what if it's actually, you know, larger than we see, or what if we could cut it in half? Um, you know, that, that gives us all these really uh, great abilities. But it also has the advantage of understanding 
kind of uh, long-term disparity. So a lot of these pieces of the puzzle, right, it's it, uh, easy to sort of see, okay, in the short term, black men have, uh, on average, have lower um, access to supportive care in our, in our country, mm-hmm. and that leads to lower suppression. Yeah. You can get a kind of a short-term sense. That means that their part- partners likely will be, you know, more exposed to potential transmission. But over the long term, how does that play out? And so this, you you know, you can also kind of simulate 10 years worth of all of this in a matter of three hours, you know, if everything were to stay the same. So you get yeah. that, that speeding up as well, which is really fascinating. And in your study, you've identified quite a few factors associated with disparities between the groups. What would you say are the most striking findings? Um, I think there's a lot of uh, interesting findings, and just to sort of take a few in the order that they were presented. The first aspect um, really looked at the impact of assortative mixing. And what that really is is the phenomenon of uh, people of, of, of one race tending, on average, to, uh, to have sex with people of their own race. And in the recent years in the literature, this has sort of emerged as an explanation from a number, a number of primary epidemiological studies uh, as part of the explanation for the disparities by race. So what I mean by that is, well, existing prevalence is higher among black MSM, and therefore that explains why incidence in the coming years uh, is also higher for, for black MSM. And it, prevalence is lower in white communities, and therefore um, incidence will, be, will, will then be expected to be lower. Mm-hmm. And so this has, it, on, on the surface of it, this, there's, this sort of is an intellectually uh, easy to digest type of results, but it actually really doesn't hold up in the model. And what this really, ex- we, you know, it's demonstrated what's been shown in other, as- in other modeling projects in other fields before, which is that that alone, that phenomenon of mixing alone, really does not hold out over time. In the model, we showed that the epidemics would converge to the same prevalence under a, a sortativity only scenario. Um, and this is, I think, um, a good result to bring out because I think it debunks an emerging myth. And it's, an, it's a myth that leads to a further st- stigmatizing of certain communities, which basically, you know, says, well, this is a high prevalence community and having sex in that community is inherently higher risk. And we're saying, no, there's actually got to be some other factors out there, that it's not just about racial preferences. And I think that's, that's good, to do, good to sort of set the record straight, and I think it's a good message for the community. I think um, some other features that popped up were really quantifying uh, in a deeper way the impact of disparities in HIV care um, on the epidemic. And so a defining feature in the United States here is that we have substantial differences by race and achievement of HIV care outcomes from linkage to care down through viral suppression. And so we were able to show that a, a, a fair portion uh, of the disparity was attributable to, the, to HIV care. Not, you know, not all of it, but uh, you know, just under a quarter, let's say, of the disparity was attributable to HIV care. Um, and I think that sort of provides a very actionable data point to say, look, if we could, if we can improve care among minority MSM, this is what we'll see in the future in terms of new infections in the, in the population. I think another piece that's important is really we. Steve mentioned stigma as a very sort of as, a, as almost a distal factor in the in the, in the HIV process that was less directly represented in the model. But we did look at a few features that really we think are products of stigma um, 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 that, that that Black MSM may be experiencing at higher levels than White MSM. One of which is the propensity to discuss HIV uh, or to disclose and discuss HIV status and relationships. A number of studies have shown that black MSM are, uh, feel, feel less comfortable talking about HIV with their partners. 
And we showed actually that that too had a pretty important impact on uh, the HIV epidemic in, in these communities, and in fact, a higher impact than, H than the HIV care differences. So really, that there's a behavioral factor that really is influence, that influences things quite strongly. And the last piece, which I think we'll sort of pivot to, you know, which we might talk more about in a moment, is really the, the finding uh, related to the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. That, that this, this mutation, which um, in both its uh, homozygous and heterozygous form, confers some protection against HIV and is more prevalent in the white community, that this really exerts population-level impact um, on the mm -hmm. epidemic as well. And I think that's uh, a finding that sort of hasn't been talked about in the literature too much, but we know that we know that there are racial differences in the prevalence of this mutation. That's a, I mean, that's a really interesting finding, sort of a potential biological reason for these disparities. And, and I wonder if, uh, I think maybe Steve, you could uh, perhaps talk about what the mechanism might be there. So this gene, the, the, the role of this gene in uh, converting HIV uh, protection has been known since about 1996 or so. So, so that's not new. Um, I think a lot of attention was placed on it initially back then, hoping that it would uh, explain things, would potentially lead to a cure. Um, and then we haven't seen so much attention in, uh, since on, on, on that at all. And there were a number of studies looking at, uh, as Eli mentioned, the homozygous form, people who have two copies of the, of the mutation um, are you know, very clearly, um, very strongly resistant to HIV infection, but that's quite rare, you know, within people of complete, you know, people of European descent, it's, it's only 1% or so of, of the population, and it's pretty much absent in the rest of the, of, of the world's population. But those who have one copy, the heterozygotes, which that's much more common, more like 20% of people of European descent, there's still, there's questions about whether that's protective or not. And there were a bunch of studies among heterosexuals that didn't really find much of an effect, although they were small. There was one study we dug up that was quite old now that did find a protective effect among men who have sex with men for having one copy. So we decided to use that paper to model, to, to put into the model, because it was among men who have sex with men. Um, and lo and behold, we saw this, this substantial effect. 19% of the current disparity seems to be explained by um, differences in this allele. Now that, on the one hand, is a bit of a, a difficult pill to swallow in the sense that it's not really actionable, it doesn't lead anywhere, but it is a 19% is substantial, but that still leaves 81% that, that, uh, le you know, that, that isn't uh, part of that yeah. uh, particular allele story. And, you know, and, and um, it's worth noting that there are, you know, other communities in the U.S. who also, you know, have 0% on this allele, Asian Americans and, and other populations who have you know, low rates of HIV. So it's it's not a it's not a piece of the you know it doesn't have to be destiny. It um, but it helps us remember that you know in constellation with everything else that's going on, it may be uh, one piece that sort of amplifies everything else. Yeah, yeah. So the disparities you find seem to be pretty entrenched, and I'm wondering, given the diversity of the factors you identify, there's structural, cultural, and biological. How might we set about addressing them in a coordinated and coherent way? I think that might be a question for Eli. Sure. Yeah, I, I can jump in here and try this out. I, I think it's important to remember that this is really just one chapter in our in our in our country here in the U.S. Our long our country's long challenges with race um, and ra racism, and really and 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 now in the public health community across a number of disease areas 
we've been describing and trying to under, and understand and, and ultimately ameliorate the effects of these problem of these challenges uh, on health, and that really the, the racial disparities that we see in HIV really echo disparities we see across a number of, of disease areas, and so this is not a problem in isolation. And I think um, you know. Race is recognized, and our, our, our nation has, an H, has a national HIV-AIDS strategy, and the, the racial disparities, and even among MSM, and even among those in the South, uh, are recognized as really priority areas, and we have very race-specific targets for uh, HIV diagnosis and viral suppression outcomes. And so in our highest levels of, of national planning, this has now become a priority area. So I think that um, is a very appreciated level of coordination. Um, and so from that, you know, we have sort of an action action plans that sort of try to align programs uh, towards meeting those uh, race-specific targets, towards minimizing disparities. But I don't think that's enough, obviously, and that's not uh, the question you really asked is really almost broader and, and about society level, societal level ch changes. So I think we need sort of society level reconfiguration of how we understand, how we um, approach communities of color and support them, through, you know, in, in the components of HIV prevention and treatment and to really make sure that we're ensuring fair and just access uh, mm -hmm. to those services. And it really doesn't end at the, at, at the issues that we tackled in our model. I mean, we're discovering now through new work that there's similar disparities emerging in, in, in PrEP. You know, we didn't really have HIV uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP considered in this model, but a lot of the, a lot of the types of issues that we uh, thought about in this HIV model um, really could be applied to the rollout of PrEP in the U.S. And as new HIV prevention and treatment options come onto the table, we're going to have to keep working on these, uh, uh, working on these issues of race uh, for each of these new options. And I can, I'll just add to that, we're already seeing Right, in some of the preliminary studies about uptake, um, you know, in demonstration uh, and implementation work here in the U.S. in the initial rollout of PrEP in different communities, so we're already seeing generally higher uptake uh, among white gay men than among black gay men, which, of course, is exactly the opposite of where the burden lies. So I think exactly what Eli is saying is, is the irony is that, that this may end up exacerbating uh, racial disparities you know, even while it's leading to an overall reduction in the epidemic, it could be leading to uh, exacerbation of disparities, which is something we, uh, as a public health community, need to be taking many, many more steps on, and we're starting to see them in a number of different uh, places. Yeah, it really seems like there's some issues of inequality and, and access um, that this work is highlighting. As most of your listeners probably know, regardless of what country they're in, the U.S. has undergone a fairly large political shift over the course of us doing this work. Um, yeah, we had heard. Which, is, <laughs> which is, uh, will almost undoubtedly uh, find its way into exactly um, the, the, our nation's approaches to these particular issues in, in, in large form. So. Yes. Interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Coming back to the findings of your study, one of the most notable findings is just the large amount of the disparity that's not accounted for by the factors that you've included in your model. So I just wonder if you could talk about how you might set about trying to identify what else is at play here, what the other factors are in, that are involved in maintaining these disparities. I can take a stab at the first one. I think um, one uh, large piece that's been discussed in the literature uh, uh, frequently that we haven't, we didn't include in the model is 
um, the risk associated with other sexually transmitted infections. We, we didn't put it in the model because it's a tricky thing to look at, right? You see disparities in HIV and you also see disparities in gonorrhea. And the question, you know, the first question is, does, does one fuel the other and vice versa? Or is it simply that because they're both spread on the same sexual network that the disparities you see are both the outcomes of the same processes, not that they cause one another. So it's a, it's a tricky thing to build into the model. It requires, you know, building out all of this, the biology of this all other infection. Um, but we did, so that's why we didn't include it. But I, but we do know that they can sort of at the, you know, at the individual level, having one, one ulcerative SCI especially can in, uh, increase risk for, for HIV. And the kind of ask the same care cascade and access to supportive care pieces play into maintaining that other disparity, but they're exacerbated because these are curable. And so, you know, in these cases, you know, for something like gonorrhea or access to care means means cure or can mean cure, mm. um, and there and therefore that risk, um, sort of that added bump for HIV transmission goes away. And so, I think by putting those pieces in there. Um, that really will take the, the sort of care piece that we saw and access to supportive care and, and recognize that it actually could play a much bigger role in terms of the ability to fuel these other STIs at the same disparities and have them feedback on one another. And in fact, third colleague of, I, uh, of us, Samuel Janesse, has been working on building out those tools in our, within our toolkit for a while. So I think we'll be able to see more on that uh, realm pretty soon. Um, I think that's by far the biggest piece we haven't included. I, Eli, I don't know if there's other things you wanted to mention. Um, I think another piece to put in there is that we really don't have enough data um, to to put in the model to really recreate the full historic the full history of this. That the the HIV epidemic has been been a prominent issue in the, the MSM communities of the U.S. for 35 years, but the data that we have at hand to put into these sort of models are really much more recent data. And so the uh, disparities in the HIV epidemic that we see today are really the accrual of decades of, of issues um, uh, that we don't necessarily represent. And sort of the, the big one to me that comes to mind was a disparity in, in access to highly effective ART during the 1990s, that there was sort of a time shift uh, where uh, where my, uh, racial minorities were, were were slower to have full access to those therapies, and so that t- those types of historical aspects um, really were, aren't in there because we don't have enough enough data to really do what we need to do, and so there may be some aspects of the observed epidemics today in the real world um, that really just cannot be fully accounted for without doing a full historical perspective. Mm-hmm. That would be the other big one to me. Well, that's uh, fascinating, and uh, and thank you very much for joining us to give us uh, a bit more insight into your your study and the findings. Um, so I think uh, that's us done. Um, I'd just like to say uh, to Eli and to Steve, thank you both very much for for speaking to us today. Our pleasure.